You're listening to Team Talk, a podcast by the Evangelical Movement of Wales to support church leaders. Welcome to Team Talk again from the Evangelical Movement of Wales. Once again, we're delighted that you found us and you've been willing to join us. So wherever you are, if you're walking to work and listening to us, or maybe you're even lying in the bath, we don't mind as long as you are with us today, because we're looking and continuing to look at one of the great glorious doctrines of the Christian faith, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, for part two, we're delighted to be joined by our good friend Stephen Clark, speaking to us all the way from sunny Cyprus. And yet we know still his heart is very much with the work here in Wales. So a warm welcome to you again, Stephen. Good to be with you again, yes. Great. Well, now, last time you were with us, Stephen, we were looking in particular at the way in which the doctrine of the person of Christ, particularly the incarnation, really needs to be handled from the narrative. And the importance of drilling down and digging into the narrative. And you you took us to some great places. And, and I, I know that uh, people have found that extremely helpful. We're going to change tack a little bit in this part two. Um, and one of the things I'd love to talk to you about today is the whole matter of uh, really maintaining balance in our understanding of the doctrine. Um, historically, of course, this has been a real battlefield in the early church, mm. certainly. And those battles, whilst won in one way, still can continue um, inadvertently, perhaps, in the minds of Christians. And certainly there are influences today uh, which can tip us and lean us in an unhelpful direction. So, you know, commonly, um, what are some of the problems maybe or misunderstandings that Christians may sometimes have concerning the person of Christ as a huge area. Where would you like to jump in on this? Well, I had a conversation some years ago with a a man who's a fine pastor. Um, He was youngish then. He's he's not so young now. Um, We were having a conversation about a, a, a different matter. But in order to illustrate the point he was making, he was disagreeing with me about something. He said, uh, now, you don't believe, do you, that when Jesus was in the womb of Mary, he was filling the universe? Well, I certainly do, I said. He then said to me, nobody in the history of the church has believed that. Really, I said. Cyril of Alexandria believed it. John Calvin believed it. One could add for good measure that Athanasius believed it. In fact, it's the orthodox uh, classical doctrine of the person of Christ uh, in the history of the church. Now, this person had had a good theological education in an evangelical theological college, I wouldn't say where, um, and was also pursuing further studies at that time. He not only was unaware of this doctrine, he actually thought that what I was saying was something new and peculiar to me. That concerns me, really, because if somebody who's been and, and he's a bright fellow, if if some you know not the sort of person who 
you know, just uh, loafs around in a theological college. He, he was a serious student. And that if he could be so wrong on this and not realize it, well, then what is that saying? Now, I love the great Christmas hymns. I think that one of the great gifts to the church was Charles Wesley. And some of his Christmas hymns are, well, they, they are off the scale of wonder. I think they're glorious. But in one of his hymns, he says something, and I know what he means. And in a hymn, it's appropriate. And, and even theologically, one can find um, scriptural warrant for the kind, not the same thing, but the kind of thing he was saying. But it could mislead. When he says, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man, well, yes, Paul refers to the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. But hang on, that doesn't mean that God has got a blood system. There's a fairly, which I won't go into, there's a fairly technical name for what's going on there. When Wesley writes what I think, for me, is the greatest Christmas hymn ever written, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you see in one verse he says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. What's he saying there? I, th I think he's saying something which, strictly speaking, comes into collision with what he says in that other hymn. That, that in this person, Jesus Christ, um, the Godhead is veiled in flesh. But yeah, what is the Godhead? Now, um, John Calvin, uh, not only John Calvin, but the, the, there's, a there's a phrase, the extra Calvinisticum. Uh, really emphasized this, that, that Jesus Christ at all points was filling the universe, even though he was incarnate. Because if he wasn't, then you've got to say that the incarnation involved divine suicide. Because God, by definition, if, if he loses his attributes, he's going to un-God himself. Well, he's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's all of those things. So what does it mean when it says that uh, he, he, the word was made flesh? Well, it means that he added something. He didn't subtract anything from himself. He added something to himself. And the great act of self-humbling wasn't that he emptied himself of any of his attributes. It's that he assumed human nature into union with himself. So that means, of course, let me put it like this. John chapter 1 refers to him as the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. James tells us God cannot be tempted. But you don't have to read very far into the Gospels before you realize that Jesus was tempted of the devil for 40 days. The letter to the Hebrews spells it out. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hang on. What's going on here then? God cannot be tempted. The Word is God. The Word was made flesh. The Word was tempted. Yes, the person of Jesus Christ was tempted as to his human nature. The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. God doesn't get hungry, doesn't get thirsty, doesn't have a body. God is spirit. But Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty. What's going on here? Well, you've got two natures now, but one person he says before Abraham was, he doesn't say before Abraham was, my divine nature is. He says before Abraham was, I am. 
when he's on the cross, he doesn't say my human nature is thirsty. He says, I am thirsty. So you've got this profound, profound mystery that you've got one person. He's not a split personality at all. It's the one person who is acting at all points. But he's acting as to two, he has two natures. He's, he's not being tempted as to his godhood. He's not being thirsty as to his godhood, and he's not before Abraham as to his humanity. Now, I'll never forget reading. To me, it's one of the most profound things I've ever read in my life. The late Professor John Murray, in a wonderful chapter, only about nine pages, on the person of Christ, he says this. It, it went off like a bomb in my mind when I read it. In the person of Christ, there are two centers of consciousness but not of self-consciousness. <laughs> I can honestly say that blew my mind when I read it. And I still, years later, marvel at that. And it didn't lead me to some sort of um, dry, dusty, doctrinal dissection of the truth. It led me to worship. Mm. It, this, this is, it means that Jesus has a mind that knows everything. And he has a mind. That doesn't know everything. You think of the practical benefit of that. How many Christians get troubled by that statement where Jesus referring to probably to his second coming or something, it's the fall of Jerusalem. Of that day and hour knows uh, no man, not the angels, not even the sun. And they say, well, how can that be? And so some people have gone into heresy to try to explain that. That is no more a problematic statement than I'm thirsty. Then Jesus was hungry. Then Jesus was tired. It's referring to his human mind. He's got a divine mind. He's got a human mind. As to his divine mind, he knows everything. As to his human mind, he doesn't. He still doesn't know everything, even in, in his glorified state. So, wow, there's so much there. Absolutely. Just very quickly, point of clarification, Stephen, that what you were reading there from Professor Murray, what, what was that? Uh, where was that found if people wanted to read that? It's in volume two of his collected writings, um, Systematic Theology, and it's the chapter on the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. I started to quote that in my sermons and I drip fed it and drip fed it. And I'll never forget one brother saying to me, do you know, each time you've said that, I thought there's something huger. And after about six or seven different times I mentioned over uh, two years, I'm beginning, he said, I'm just beginning to see what's going on there. And, and same for me, I'm, I'm only beginning to grasp it. I think you've touched on this as well, the massive pastoral benefit from people been taken to these places in a sermon the big view of jesus mm. i, I yeah. think more and more i don't know how you feel stephen but the uh the polarizing of marginalizing of christianity today it's so easy to for christians to buy into that and feel that our faith is just you know we're almost apologizing all the time but it's mm. these big views of the lord jesus that not only warm the heart in the moment but i think they put a bit of steel into us in terms of, you know, presenting the gospel 
in everyday yeah. life, that it, we're not part yeah. of something small. It's something huge. You, you were talking about Christmas carol lines there. I was thinking of the line, he who made the starry skies now within a manger yeah. lies. Really, yeah, that, that great, needs, isn't it? it is great. But from what you're saying, it needs a bit of fine tuning, doesn't it? It's not he, ma he made, he sustains the starry skies. Yes. And, uh, well, there's, there's a great hymn by Joseph Hart, um, the Lord that made both heaven and earth. And there's one line, it's one verse says, No less almighty at his birth than on his throne supreme, his shoulders held up heaven and earth when Mary held up him. What? Mind-bending. Fantastic. Isn't that yes. glorious? Absolutely. Well, I'm sure... And it's in that other one, Lower within the manger lies, you built the starry skies. Yeah. Sorry. No, well, I'm sure this is going to be very helpful to, to lots of people listening. But one of the questions people might have in terms of our Lord's human nature and divine nature, if we come back to the question of the, the, the time of his return, not even the sun. Yeah. And yet, of course, in his divine nature, he did know. So why might it be that he does not, within his perfect human nature, access the knowledge that is in his divine nature, kind of bring it across and answer that question. Someone might be asking that. I think, yes, I think that would almost then be, be deifying his humanity. I don't mean deifying it in the right sense that, that in Christ we are partakers of the divine nature. It would undermine the doctrine of his humanity. It's almost a little bit like the temptation in the wilderness. You know, if you're the son of God, you know, turn the stones into bread. Throw yourself down off the temple. And of course, the most powerful of those temptations comes from Satan, but not directly, but through men. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Mm. Um, the whole point of him, of his humanity, is that he is like us in every single respect. The only way in which he differs from us is he's without sin. Sin is not inherent to human nature per se. Adam had no sin in him as he came forth from the hand of God. Sin has invaded human nature. Christ's human nature was free from sin. But I think there's more, and, and I think there's a whole strand of New Testament teaching that is often missed. He goes into the synagogue and he quotes from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, etc., etc., how does Peter begin his sermon on the day of Pentecost? He tells us, doesn't he, that um, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He says something similar in Acts chapter 10 in the household of Cornelius, where he says, you know, um, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Now, there's a huge emphasis on the humanity of Christ there, empowered by the Spirit. Hebrews 9 says that it was through the eternal Spirit that he offered himself um, unto God. Now, historically, John Owen, the Puritan, made a lot of this. Um, Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, did, and George Smeaton, the 19th century Scottish theologian, did, and in our own day and age, the late Douglas Macmillan. 
in a wonderful series of sermons which the uh, EMW published through the Printerian Press, Jesus, Power Without Measure, he explores this, the ministry of the Spirit in the life of Christ. And I think it's a mistake, you see, to say that the miracles of Jesus, ah, they prove he's God. There's a children chorus, you know, he's done this, he's done that. Who can do that? Only God. Yeah, only God can do those things. But wait a minute. Elijah did some pretty powerful things. Elisha did some pretty powerful things. They weren't God. The Spirit was on. Samson did some very mighty things. The Spirit enabled him. Now then, here is the God-man. It is the person of the Son of God who is always the subject of every act. But he is acting by his human nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's been quite a bit of theological debate in recent years. There's a, a fellow called Oliver Crisp who's written extensively on the doctrine of the person of Christ. What um, one of his books, Professor Paul Helm, refers to as Crisp Christology. He's a bit unhappy with aspects of John Owen's teaching. I think I go with Owen rather than Crisp on this. Um, but it seems to me that the New Testament is emphasising that Jesus, it, it, it's the one person of the Son of God, yes, who's acting, but he's doing these things as to his human nature, empowered by the Spirit. And so his, even his, his resurrection, uh, declared to be the uh, Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness, all the persons of the Trinity were involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, notice that it's not the spirit, it's the spirit of him, that's God the Father. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have authority to lay down. I have authority to take it up again. And then there's the, the Holy Spirit, wrote the opening verses of Romans. So all the persons of the Godhead uh, are, are involved, but... His ascension, though it's the ascension of the one person, surely this is about his human nature because he didn't have to come from heaven. He came on this mission and it's now, as Douglas Macmillan quoting Rabbi John Duncan says, he has raised the dust of the earth to the throne of the universe. Mm -hmm. well, I think that's glorious, you see. And um, how often, it's interesting, how often does one hear sermons on the work of the Holy Spirit at Calvary? <laughs> but according to Hebrews 9, it's the Spirit who's sustaining him in this great work. Because although it's the person of the Son of God, as, to his, as the mediator and as to his human nature, the Father turns from him. How is he going to go through this? The Spirit is with him. <laughs> How of the saints not doing anything like what Christ did? But how have the saints who've been martyred, how have they persevered? Same spirit. So the humanity of Christ, he overcomes temptation, not by drawing on his, his divine power. No, he faces temptation as you and I do. How does he triumph? By the spirit. It's glorious. It is glorious. And there are these moments in scripture, aren't there, where that kind of tension between the human, well, it isn't a tension, but the, the the working together of the person of the hum, of Christ in these humanity and his deity come together in a remarkable way. I'm thinking of there in yeah. John 13 with the disciples in the upper room, 
Uh, and John mm. says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer cloth, the clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist and began to wash their feet in a basin. There's this extraordinary statement about his his deity and, of course, his self-knowledge of that. Yeah. And yet there is this most incredible expression of basic human humility. And the other one that springs to mind, and I know a lot of Christians have struggled with this one, Stephen, is the is the cry of dereliction. Um, you know, Luther's comment to God abandoned by God. How can it be? Um, surely what you've been saying there helpfully addresses that, our thinking on that, would you say? Well, yeah, I mean, Luther, I, 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 I'm not up to cleaning his boots. I mean, he was a, a, just a phenomenal man of God. Amen. But in his doctrine of the person of Christ, I think he went astray. Right. Because he believed, of course, that there was a transfer of attributes from the one nature to the other nature. That cashed out in his doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So he believed that the human nature of Christ was, as it were, uh, deified so that his, he's in heaven, yeah, but he, he's also bodily in and under the elements of bread and wine. Um, I think we've got to be careful when we speak of God being abandoned by God. Yes, the person of the Son of God was abandoned, but there's no rupture in the Trinity. Mm. It, 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 would be, it would be divine suicide. And I, I think what's going on there, it's the person who's being abandoned, but as to his official status as mediator, as to his human nature. Um, you really are touching, I think, the, the deepest mystery of the lot there. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking um, of a brother, oh, what's his name? Well, his name doesn't matter. But they, they, I know his name now, but uh, there's a brother who's written a PhD on this, um, on this very thing, um, on the cry of dereliction. Um, a very, very fine treatment. I, I, I've got it here uh, on my computer. It's a very, very demanding treatment, but very, very fine treatment. And you realize that those church councils of the early centuries of um, Nicaea dealing with, you know, Trinitarian heresy, um, Council of uh, Ephesus and Chalcedon dealing with different heresies concerning the person of Christ, and then the Second and Third Council of Constantinople. Uh, these weren't people sitting around with too much time on their hands and thinking, oh, it'd be nice to have a good theological discussion. They were grappling. They were grappling with the profundities of the biblical teaching and how easy it is to, to go astray from that. I think another thing that has to be fed in is, is alongside the doctrine of the person of Christ are the states of Christ. That is his pre-incarnate state, his incarnate state as in a state of humiliation when he was on earth, his state of glorification which begins then with the cross and resurrection. John links his glorification with the cross and then with his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly ministry. Um, 
some verses which can puzzle people are dealing not so much with the essential godhood of the essential humanity and the essential one person, but rather with the different states. When he says, my father is greater than I, if you look at that verse in context and look at what comes before it and what comes after it, he's referring to the fact he's in a state of humiliation and he's soon to be exalted. Hmm. He's not on about the father being, to use a pretty long word, ontologically greater than him. Remember, you're in Don Carson, helpfully illustrated. Um, one might say the queen is a greater person than I am. Yeah, she's not more of a human being than I am. Mm -hmm. The prime minister is a greater person than I am. He, he, you know, he's in a position greater than I am. He's not more of a human being. And when Jesus says the father is greater than I, he doesn't mean he's more God than I am. He means at present, he's, I'm in a state of humiliation. I could see you smiling about um, when I said the Prime Minister is a greater person than I am. We won't go into the political... Um, we to pray for our leaders, whoever they are. But, you know, you take Carson's point there. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, again, Stephen, we, we really indebted you for just stretching our minds so helpfully again with these things that the Scriptures point us to again and again and surely this is the reminder that we must get away from a superficial treatment of the good news of the birth of Jesus this is the most extraordinary event in human yeah. history and um, it's something that we we must all think far more deeply about biblically and we hope that this has been an encouragement to you today this episode of team talk certainly this has been very timely and Stephen, perhaps you'd be willing to join us on Team Talk again at a future date. Perhaps we can explore some of these things again. It would be uh, so helpful if that I, was I'd okay. be very glad to, and uh, even to look at the practical implications, because Paul takes this deep and high theology, say in Philippians 2, and then he applies it to how we treat other people. Yeah. Or in 2 Corinthians, about giving to those who are in need. Yeah. It doesn't, this doesn't stay in the theological study room. This is the bang, hit the road, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's what we need. Well, thank you again, Stephen. We trust you have a great... Is, will this be your first Christmas in Cyprus? No, it's my second Christmas here. And Christmas is not the big event here that it is in the UK. Yeah. The big event out here is Easter. Huge, it's, it's huge Easter out here. And of course, our church celebrates it according to the Eastern Orthodox calendar, because that's when the whole island, uh, it's, it's a massive, massive event out here, Easter. It's a much bigger event than Christmas is in the UK. Well, however big your Christmas is in, in Cyprus, we trust it's a blessed time for you and the fellowship that you're you. part of and growing in. But thank you again for joining us and thank you for listening today to Team Talk from the Evangelical Movement of Wales. I'm Phil Swan. Thank you for joining us and we God